Hello. Welcome to uh, Lunchtime Babbling. My name is Shay Brown. I'm the CEO of Babel AI. I'm also a fellow at For Humanity, which is a nonprofit that uh, develops uh, audit criteria for AI systems, and the executive director of the Algorithmic Bias Lab, which is the research arm of Babel. So um, today I'm going to talk um, a little bit of about something different. So I've been talking in the past few weeks about bias audits, and this is sort of the, you know, the hot topic recently because, uh, in particular, the New York City uh, Local Law 144 has uh, required bias audits uh, starting January 1st. And so, uh, without surprise, people are interested in in bias audits and what they are and and how you might do them. But I want to talk today about uh, risk assessments. And it's one of those things that uh, is going to be required. So risk and in impact assessments, and in particular, ethical risk and impact assessments is what I'm going to focus on. And it, it's it's one of those things that uh, is going to be required by pretty much any law that governs AI that's being proposed either around the country or at the federal level uh, and in the European Union uh, is going to require some sort of risk or impact assessment for AI systems. And uh, ideally, it's something that happens, you know, even before you start developing a system. Uh, but for sure, if you already have one, then there, there's nothing to stop you from from uh, doing a risk or impact assessment during the process. And, you know, uh, Babel has a, an audit specifically uh, developed for New York City. And in that audit, one of the, um, that we have criteria around uh, risk and impact assessments. And we've gotten asked before, you know, this is not part of the law. Why Why are you requiring this? And, uh, I mean, the answer is, is that it's very difficult if you're going to be testing uh, a system for bias to do so in the absence of having thought carefully about the, the risks of bias in that system. And so I just wanted to walk through uh, some of the process that we've done uh, when we do risk and impact assessments and a little bit of what we're kind of recommending as a an easier version for companies to try um which is which is fairly low impact in terms of the amount of time it takes but i think it can be quite illuminating so as normal i'm going to try to speak um you know not speak for very long uh if you have any questions you know feel free to use the the q a you can ask any time and then i'll i'll talk um i'll address those at the end and so um, what I'd like to do is, uh, let me first talk before I share my screen. Let me first give you kind of, uh, the approach that Babel takes to this. Um, you know, we've done, we've done ethical risk and impact assessments for, um, for a number of systems. And it's one of the things that we found companies find most impactful. So a lot of times, uh, the work that we've done, people have come to us because they're interested in a bias assessment. Like, you know, they have, uh, because this is the big the thing you see always in the, in the news, uh, what people are worried about, biased algorithms causing harm. And we have a policy, and we have for, for several years now, that we, you know, we, or, we won't undertake a bias assessment unless we're allowed to do a, a risk and impact assessment. So I keep saying risk and impact assessment. What's the difference between a risk assessment and impact assessment? Uh, 
The only difference in, in terms of how we characterize this is a risk uh, can be something that's not realized. So there's a risk for potential harm, um, but it may not actually have impact because potentially that uh, risk has been controlled for and mitigated in a, an appropriate way. And so we think a risk assessment is sort of a broader assessment of a system really looking for all the ways in which it could potentially fail or potentially harm people. So let me start a step back and 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 address the goals of what, what are you actually trying to do when you conduct one of these assessments. Well, the, the main goal is to identify ways in which a system, a socio-technical system, so that's the algorithm plus all of the the ways in which the algorithm is used in a particular context, the ways in which that system could potentially negatively impact somebody. And so we're focusing on negative because that's that's typically the, the most worrisome. Uh, but you, it doesn't mean you have to totally focus on the negative. Sometimes the, the there are positive things that might outweigh some potential negative things. And so uh, you can uh, indeed think both positive and negative outcomes as well. And so there's really two ways in which we can approach this. One is to think in terms of harm. So what are the potential harms that could happen? And another is to think in terms of interests or rights. Like what are interests and rights that might potentially be in, uh, infringed on? And so that's the main goal is to figure out how is this? how can this algorithm uh, potentially uh, cause problems and and then how can we mitigate that so the general process that we uh undertake when we do this it's very it's uh i'd say it's very fairly labor intensive but uh there's a there's a general flow and the flow is you first have to identify all of the stakeholders and the, and that's uh that's the very first step so who is it in that interacts with the socio-technical system and so uh, typically uh, what you would do is you'd have to get in a room, you'd have to brainstorm, you'd have to go talk to people who uh, use the system and, and really figure out where is the system impacting, where, you know, who's touching the system in some way, who could potentially be impacted. And you come up with a list. And so this, this you can't limit yourself to just the end user. You always, you have to think about the company, you have to think about people who are using the tool. And so uh, generating the, this list takes some time. And uh, if you're doing this, I'd keep in mind that this list should be dynamic. It should be something that uh, you constantly update and you constantly reflect on and think about whether there are sort of intersections of these groups that are, uh, that are important that you're missing. And so always sort of a critical self-reflection here. Now, it's also important to get as, you know, as many diverse uh, inputs as you can in the room when you're doing this uh, because you know you you definitely need to not have any blind spots you're always going to have blind spots and you have to accept that but keep fighting against those blind spots as much as possible so once we have this this list of, of stakeholders which we will continue to update then we have to start deciding whether we're going to focus on harms or interests and uh, harms tend to be uh, kind of an easier place to go uh than than interests um but we have done it before we've started with interests and like rights are interests which are uh so important that they give rise to duties that other people to protect those um and so you know you could even start with the fundamental 
fundamental human rights if you wanted to and, and uh, elucidate it that way. But harms tend to be really, uh, really obvious uh, or more obvious to pinpoint. And so uh, start coming up with harms that the system could potentially cause. Now, at the same time, uh, you need to start thinking about causes for those harms. So, um, and I would recommend doing this at the at the exact same time. So if you could imagine if you're brainstorming, uh, you know, you have uh, this list of stakeholders and then you uh, and then you want to start generating what are the potential harms that could happen to these stakeholders. Sometimes it's easier in the moment to start thinking about potential causes of harms, like ways in which an algorithm could fail or ways in which there could be misinterpretation uh, of an algorithm uh, by a person who's using that algorithm. And so you kind of have to keep those two things going at the same time. And so literally having a list with with uh, harms and having a, a, a list of potential causes of those harms going at the same time uh, can really be useful. And, and you can start generating uh, more ideas that way. Um, and so as you're doing this, uh, let me step back one more second, actually, because uh, I, I should have mentioned this in the beginning. Uh, before you do any of this, probably the first thing that you need to do is to get a full context of the algorithmic system or the socio-technical system. So I, I missed this. I should be paying attention to my notes. Um, and the, the reason being is that all of this is very context-dependent. And so an algorithm that's used to identify somebody who's shoplifting in a store uh, is going to have a very different um, sort of potential harm profile than an algorithm that's used to uh, allow somebody, uh, you know, into or out of some secure facility or something like this. Those are two, two very different things. Even if the tech underlying technology might be similar in a lot of ways, those are two very different contexts. And so... Um, we actually have a methodology at Babel that we use. Um, I wouldn't say formally use, but but it's sort of a rule of thumb, uh, which we call the CIDA narrative. So C-I-D-A. And it basically says, you know, uh, C is for context. So elucidating uh, to the fullest extent possible what the context of this algorithm is. So where is it being used? That includes who's using it, who, who it's being used on, let's say. Um, picture, you know, the painting, the most detailed picture of the, this algorithm as possible. That's what the context is. And that takes uh, a lot of understanding. You can also think, uh, if anyone knows anything about like an explainability statement, oftentimes those are, look very similar to what this context is. And then there's the algorithmic part, which there's inputs to that algorithm. So the I is the inputs. And so what data is collected? How is it collected? How does it get fed into the system? What are the filter effects? And I've talked about this in in, pre, in previous webinars about filter effects and how the way you collect data could potentially uh, be causing bias or, and, or in some cases causes harm or exclusion. Uh, and so you have to understand that input process and that filtering process. Then there's the D, which is the decision procedure. So, so there's actual computation. So this is the this is the algorithm part. So what actually gets computed and what's the output and how does it get computed is also very important. And that's something that bias assessments um, uh, can and often do focus on. And then from the output of that algorithm, there is some action that is taken. 
right? It, it's it's almost never that you, there just some number pops out uh, and then nothing happens, right? That that would be kind of a useless algorithm. Some number pops out and something happens with that number or some output or classification. And so um, understanding what are the actions that are taken from that uh, that output, from that decision procedure, and what are the range of actions that can happen. And uh, a lot of that has the sort of socio-technical aspect to it. You know, who who is it that that uh, d- does that action and in, uh, under what circumstances? So having that kind of picture is a, is a really good first step. And you won't have all of the pieces of that of that picture, that CETA narrative, but it's good to have that in hand so you know exactly what situation and context you're talking about. Okay, now back to uh, back to the harms and the causes of the harms. And so essentially what you are doing is uh, generating as much as possible uh, a complete list as you can of the potential harms and potential causes of those harms. And here, um, again, diversity is important and diversity of information and perspective is important. You have to kind of uh, generate this list as faithfully as possible and try to be as complete as possible. And this is where you could do this all in one workshop, let's say, which has happened before uh, that we have we have done this in a in a single sitting, but we've only ever done that in cases where we've already done extensive research and interviews, and there are people who in the room who have extremely deep knowledge about the socio technical system from let's say from interviewing people who built the system from interviewing and taking notes uh, people who have been impacted by the system, interviewing and taking notes and having an understanding of policies and procedures that people who use the system use to, let's say, take action based on the outputs. And so um, it's better if you have that, all of that knowledge uh, on hand when you're doing this. If you don't, you can still do this process and then go reflect back on what you don't understand and then go find that and then come back and do it again. Um, but you do need to, you need, do need to have as complete a list as possible of those two things. So now let's say you've generated this list. You have a list of harms and you have a list of potential causes of harms and you, and you have some faith that you've done a good job or as, as good as you can of making that a fairly complete list. Then what you need to do is uh, start looking at um, comparing those two lists. And so in particular, identifying gaps is important. So if I have uh, a harm, something that I see uh, put down as a harm, so the algorithm uh, has somehow harmed someone, but you don't have a cause for that harm, like a direct cause for that harm, you have to start digging around and think like, why did I think that was a potential harm? What what gives rise to that harm, you know? So you need to fill in that gap. And similarly, if you have a way in which an algorithmic system can fail, so this is on the cause section, you know that it could potentially fail, right? Let's say one of the engineers in the in the room says, I know this is a common failure mode and this may have some downstream effects, but then you don't have any potential harms or impacts on the other side. You, you start reflecting on why is that? Are there things that I'm missing on the harm side? Or is it that uh, the, our, the context of the way in which we use this system, there are controls in place which mitigate that and that there is, there's no uh, 
there's an, not a likely uh, harm that happens from this. And and as you do this, you often are going to reflect on a lot of hypotheticals. So let's say there's a cause uh, that a way in which the algorithm could fail. Uh, you don't have any harms associated with that. And let's say you've identified that's because we have some controls, let's say a human in the loop. And that human in the loop, which is a very common control that you might put in place or might be in place. Uh, so there might be a human reviewing this and, and it's unlikely, uh, or at least in your initial estimation, it was unlikely that this would actually propagate to a real harm on the other end. Then you need to start challenging those assumptions. What is it? What would it take for that control to fail? Um, and oftentimes what you'll find is that you can come up with ways in which you can shore up that control, you know, that, uh, you can, you can do something differently, maybe communicate, maybe it's through education, maybe it's through a user interface or something like this that will, uh, make that control more powerful at mitigating that, a, a potential downstream harm, which you ha had ignored. So this process of connecting the dots between those two tends to be really illuminating and it, and it starts bringing out things which are, uh, which are really relevant for risk in this system. Okay. So after this process, so let's say you've completed this process. Now you have uh, a list of harms. You have a list of causes of those harms. They're all connected. And in some case they, they are not connected because you think you have appropriate controls. Then what you, you're able to do is you can start thinking about mitigation strategies because you have a failure mode or you have some some cause on one side and maybe i should give some examples so one obvious cause uh, of harm is bias right so we've been talking about bias for several weeks now and so um, it's pretty obvious that an, if an algorithm works differently for one group than it does for another group that's sort of the definition of um bias or at least societal bias in the way that we categorize it that's clearly uh, a cause which which everyone should consider in their algorithm that's one of the that's one of the top things on the list that you need to consider um, but there could be other things it could be a uh, cause might be a misunderstanding so it might be that um, a person sees an output person has to make a decision that and take an action based on that output uh, but uh, if the person interprets it in, a, in an incorrect way, there could be an adverse outcome for someone. There could be a harm that happens at the other end. And so uh, harms don't have to be, or causes of harms rather, don't have to be technical in nature. They can be socio-technical. And I can say from experience, uh, having done many of these now, uh, your list is going to be made mostly of the socio-technical causes. The, there, there, a lot of what happens where the risk happens is that place where there's an interface between the technology, that, that decision procedure, uh, and the actions that are taken typically by people, where you're going to have a lot of potential for risk, which is why it makes so much sense uh, in all of the typical guidelines for, um, I wouldn't say typical, emerging guidelines for responsible AI that uh, things like training and explainability, those sorts of uh, interventions are so important because they give rise to risk. But going through a process like this allows you to make those connections in a lot more robust way. So when you have these causes, 
that could potentially uh, give rise to harm. The question is, how do you mitigate that? And that's where a lot of the hard work um, and a lot of the really important work happens in these risk assessments is now you can identify, all right, if my algorithm gives me inconsistent results based on unexpected inputs, so this is this is sort of a, on the robustness side of the algorithm, how do we control for that? How do we test for it? How do we monitor it? And how do we, in the end, mitigate the potential for that to happen? And and this is really the power of these risk assessments is that it gives you a set of tools and a, and a sort of snapshot and a picture of the algorithmic system that is going to allow you to t make take those interventions and really mitigate the risk. So, um, and that's also the fun work because then you can, when you're doing that, um, that's where you're getting a lot of value from this process. That's where you are making your system more robust, less bias, uh, more um, just better for humans. And so uh, that's why we require this. That's why we think that um, risk assessments should be done uh, by every company that ha makes AI or that uses AI. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a sort of heavy, onerous process. So the process that I described to you now, typically when our when our firm does this, it involves a lot of stakeholder interviews. And so we get into a company, we have to understand how the system works. So this is sort of constructing that CETA narrative, make sure we have every piece of the puzzle, or at least as many as we can, to really understand where can the system affect people? How is it used? What are the sort of um, uh, use cases? And then we have to talk, uh, talk to a lot of groups. And, you know, so you have to contact stakeholders, oftentimes external stakeholders. And, and this is, we think that's really important to talk to impacted groups and talk to people who use the algorithm. So this is a very intense process. And then there's a whole analysis and we go through exactly what I just mentioned in terms of a procedure once we have all of that information. But if you're just a company that has uh, you know, a bunch of developers, product people, you have got a legal team, the easiest thing to do is to literally just call a meeting and give yourself a few hours which is expensive and that takes a lot of time and it's hard to do but give yourself a few hours and and get in a room with uh sort of as diverse a group as you can and if if it's just people from your company and that's all you can do doesn't mean you shouldn't do it because you can't get external stakeholders it's still worth doing get the people in the room and go through this exact procedure so Define the context. Okay, what what algorithms are we using? Let's let's make sure we understand all the ways in which those algorithms are used, and uh, understand the full context. How is how does it work? Make sure there are people in the room who understand how it works. Make sure there's people in the room who understand how it's used, and and uh, hopefully make sure there are people who understand sort of what external stakeholders might uh, perceive or how they experience the algorithm. Then you're going to start thinking about all of the stakeholders. And so you're going to start generating that list of stakeholders. You're going to start generating that list of potential harms associated with these, with these stakeholders. And at the same time, you're generating this list of potential causes of those harms. That's a process that can happen dynamically. Get up on a whiteboard, start writing those things down. Everyone's got input. Let's change things as, they, as they, we get new ideas. 
once we have these lists generated, then there's the process of connecting the dots between those causes and harms. Once you have that finished, uh, you're, you look for gaps there, try to fill in all the gaps, causes that don't have any harms and harms that don't have causes. And then you have a list of causes, which you now need to say, how can we mitigate those causes? How can we keep those from happening? If we can't, if there's some, if we can't mitigate them, are there other ways that, you know, let's document the fact that we can't and try to come up with, with some way in the future to mitigate that in some way. And uh, importantly, if you're doing this, uh, keep good notes because that's something that we, we'd like to see that, that process play out. And it's going to be something that is going to be required in the future. I think uh, all the, all the guidelines coming out and, uh, and all of the new regulations explicitly point to risk and impact assessments as being something that companies should be doing. And so getting in that habit now in this sort of light version of it uh, can't be uh, anything but good. Um, okay. We have, uh, you know, we have cheat sheets associated with this. And so if anyone listening is interested in getting one of these uh, cheat, cheat sheets uh, that talks about, we have them for bias assessment. We also have them for risk and impact assessments to sort of outline in a very bullet point way what I just said. Um, let us know and we're happy to, uh, to um, provide those. So let me see if uh, anything has popped up in the Q&A. Hopefully I was, uh, maybe I was so clear that nobody has any questions. Okay, so somebody does say, uh, uh, can risk assessment uh, be an automated process? So our firm is using AI governance platform that gives us automated risk assessments. So, um, okay, let me be careful in my answer here. Uh, they can be an automated process. Um, whether they should be an automated process is another story. Uh, I think that there is some hard work that has to be done initially to fully understand uh, the context of your algorithmic system and how it's being used. A lot of these socio-technical issues that I just mentioned, uh, it's hard to capture them in an automatic risk assessment. That doesn't mean you can't necessarily do it uh, and that an automated risk assessment can't be a good flag for for danger where you're, let's say you're using a particular type of algorithm uh, in a particular setting, and let's say you don't have governance uh, policies over that particular use case, these automated systems are good at flagging that sort of thing where, you know, uh, and if it's integrated into your organization in a way that is robust, uh, where people, let's say uh, there's oversight and there are people who are uh, going through a workflow and they have to uh, get approval, uh, you know, maybe checking a box that says a risk assessment has been done or um, or documenting their data or bias assessments and that kind of thing. Absolutely. But you do have to be aware of the limitations and uh, that automation has to be supported by careful thought initially. Uh, and once once you sort of go through all of these issues and have it all set up in a way that is relevant for your organization and how you use data and how you use AI, then absolutely 
you want to find efficiencies as much as possible. But um, if you haven't done a process that is similar to what I just described, even if it's the a couple of hours in a room talking about this, I think it's hard to get away with uh, automating that unless you've done something of that nature. Um, and then in terms of oversight, I think it's important that there be an oversight function, which at least at times goes through a similar process. So a very common policy and procedure that we recommend to organizations is a review process. So risk assessments, yes. There has to be a trigger that will say, uh, we need to do another, reassess that risk in some way. And uh, there needs to be a body or a group of people or a person at least who's kind of responsible for making sure that happens or actually doing that uh, that, that risk assessment. And so um, it's likely that, there, that this type of thinking and this type of procedure is going to happen within an organization, even if you have it all automated. I think there's no way of uh, setting up an organization such that it's fully automated and there's never a time where it's sort of reflected back on in a way that is uh, similar to what I just described. Okay, so I have another comment. Uh, NIST is publishing a risk management framework. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on it. Um, I think it's really good. Uh, and so we we submitted um, some comments to it, uh, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's, a really good, it's a really good framework. It's a good start. Um, and it's something to be built on. Uh, the nice thing about the NIST framework as it's currently has evolved, like the newest version, is that they focus a lot on the socio-technical risk. And so in my mind, that's a really big improvement on previous versions and other kind of uh, other guidelines for doing these sorts of things is that they did, they really honed in on the socio-technical risk. So where uh, people interact with the algorithms. And it's all, in my mind, the NIST framework is a, is a good one. Um, you know, the do I agree with all the taxonomy that they use and the way they uh, think about things like in, in detail? Not necessarily, but then I may not also be right and my way of thinking about it may not be the right way to think about it. And so uh, in the absence of anything else, uh, or even in, the, even in the presence of some other frameworks, the NIST framework is very good actually. All right, so um, it's half past now, unless I see another uh, question, which I do not. Um, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, and I, I, this has uh, been a fun experience for me. And hopefully we're going to, uh, you know, not hopefully, we're going to dive back into bias uh, starting next week and uh, start getting a little bit more technical and, and giving some guidances to some of the gray areas where, uh, in particular, uh, if you don't have demographic information to look for bias, what are the options you have available to you and how can you proceed in the, in the, you know, in the presence of this, um, this problem, which is, uh, you may not have appropriate demographic information in order to do the testing. And in some cases it may even be, uh, you know, against, best practices to collect that information. And so next week and uh, in future weeks, we're going to start getting a little bit more technical. Let, uh, as always, you know, thank you for joining me 
and let me know if you have any questions um, and I'll be sure to uh, hand out any of those cheat sheets if anyone wants it. Thank you. Have a good day.